Welcome to another edition of Now is the Time with Steve Bergson on Hebrew Nation Radio. Now is the Time is a production of MTOI, Messianic Torah Observant Israel. For more information, visit mtoi.org. Now, here's Steve. All right, so today we're going to continue in our journey through Are You Covenanted? This is part 17. Yeah, wow, is right. How do we get to part 17? Are You Covenanted? Part 17. All right. And we are continuing as we go through now looking at, um, in the Psalms, we see a lot of the need for us to pay attention to the role or effect that remembering what Yah has done is supposed to play in our covenanting. Or even if it's not supposed to play, what it does play. In other words, if we tend to pay attention and remember all the things he's done, we tend to pay attention to the covenant. We don't tend to pay attention to the things that he's done. We tend to neglect the covenant. And we see this play out in the Psalms quite a bit. And we'll see that again today. Now, we're in Psalm 105. And we finished in verse 5. But we're going to start in verse 1 just to kind of remember where we were in Psalm 105 as we read, I believe, the entire Psalm. Okay, give thanks to Yahweh. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Speak of all his wonders. Make your boast in his set-apart name. Let the hearts rejoice of those seeking Yahweh. Seek Yahweh and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember his wonders which he has done, his miracles and the right rulings of his mouth. Okay, so we covered that fairly thoroughly, I think, last week. So I'm not going to get into too much detail there. What I don't think I covered a whole lot was verse 4, which is seeking Yahweh and his strength. Just be careful that we're not leaning on our strength for everything. Although he does expect you to do with all your heart, with all your might, with all your being. So you are to make the effort, but still rely on him to supply the additional strength needed. See, we're not going to turn this into like other systems out there where we're not going to do anything and just leave it in God's hands, so to speak. Oh, you no, know, God's just going to take care of it and I don't have to do anything. No, you do everything that you can. He will do what you can't. So you do seek his strength, and you seek Yahweh. Now when you seek Yahweh, notice the order of this. You seek Yahweh, that means that you pay attention to what he has said. What has he said? That you need to do these things with all your heart, mind, and being, and strength. Then he says, and then you also seek his additional strength, which he adds to you, so that you're able to do what you need to do. And you seek his face always. I don't think I've ever said this, but, you know, could it be... One of the things that has to do with seeking his face always has to do with being aware of the expression that might be on it. I don't know. I just felt like that was just put in my head like one second ago, so I thought I'd say it, okay? Seeking his face. When you seek someone's face, I'm looking at the audience. I'm looking. If I'm seeking, you know, my wife's face, I can look and say, oh, there she's sitting right there. I'm seeking her face. And I'm noticing the expression on her face, which is a smile right now, okay? So... And it's getting redder too. Okay, so the but the whole idea of seeking his face, I mean that's such a it's such a strange idiomatic phrase to some degree because like, okay, what does it mean to seek his face? I mean we can't see him. But I think it, it has to do with I'm just going with it right now, based on the other things he's already said in this verse uh, you know, in the psalm here, what the writer wrote, is the idea of seeking thinking about, searching for the expression that might be on that face, being aware that he's watching, being aware that he's observing what you're doing and what you're saying and what you're feeling and what you're thinking and all of that stuff, seeking his face. So as we do this, I think that's part of the remembering, remembering all that he's done and remembering all that he, that he, that he, that he continues to do for us also has us to remember that we should be concerned with the expression on his face. We have verses that talk about to seek and to search out and to have a desire to do what's well-pleasing in his sight. Well, how do we know? Well, we know what he says, but how do we know? We should be thinking about, well, what I'm doing right now, if I, were, if, if I kind of put on his shoes for a second, would I be proud of the person that I'm doing this right now? Would I be pleased? Would I be angry? Would I be disappointed? Would I be sad? Because some of you will do things and your spouse or your whoever you're you know, close with or a good friend of yours might be around and you see the expression on their face and you go, yep, I really wasn't paying attention and I just did something that really upset them. 
Or, hey, they really like that. I need to remember to do that more, you know? And so it's that feedback that we get so easily with the expressiveness of our face. A little harder to do with Yahweh's face not really being there where you can see it. But I think you can use enough imagination to say, okay, if I step outside of myself, looking at what I'm doing as an observer, what would I think of that even in my flesh? And then place the idea of, well, what would Yahweh be thinking? Because we forget, I think, very often that he literally is right there all the time seeing everything we're doing. We have this idea like Moses, oh, nobody saw me kill the Egyptian. (laughs) Right? Nobody saw me do that. Because we think I'm alone in my house or I'm alone at work or whatever, wherever you're alone. Or maybe you're not alone, but nobody else is with you, but you and the one person. Oh, but nobody else knows what we're doing. But he always knows. See, and that's part of the covenant was what? To do everything he says, not just when you're in public, not just when others can see you, but knowing that he always is seeing you. And so that obedience is, I was going to say 24-7, but you're asleep part of that. So whatever hours you're awake, that's your obedience time. You know, that's 16 to 18 or so hours a day that you're actually not sleeping. That's the time where, you know, when you're eating, you need to be obedient and eat the right things. When you're talking to people, the actions you take, the things that you do, these are all things that will either put a smile on his face or cause him to be a little disappointed or maybe a lot disappointed. And so I think this is a really, you know, we seek Yahweh. So we should know, if I seek Yahweh, I'm going to put that in as a definition. When we say seek Yahweh, he says, figure out and understand what he desires us to do and not do. Then seek his strength in doing it or not doing it. Because sometimes it takes more strength not to do something than to do it. I don't know about you, but every now and then I'm ready to get so angry and I probably pull a muscle trying to stop. There are things that it really is a lot harder to stop doing and not do than to do. And you need his strength. And then we need to now be checking the pulse, so to speak, and seeking his face and saying, okay, how'd I do? Are you pleased? Are you disappointed? And we have to have a strong level of honesty with ourselves. Now, what you don't want to do is you don't want to, if you realize you disappointed him, don't go into depression and be overly disappointed in yourself. Teshuvah, get back on path and make an effort to do better. He's not looking for you to beat yourself up. And, you know, we don't do those little, you know, whips and things and do all those other things we've seen people do in history, you know, to try to make penance of some sort. No penance necessary. You repent, you teshuvah, and you do better. That means that you have to do the hard part, which is forgive yourself. That's the hardest part of forgiveness. So, seek Yahweh and his strength and seek his face always. And then, again, he reminds us to remember his wonders, which he's done. He's done so much, not only in history, but for you personally. You know that. You've all told me some of the things that he's done. Maybe not all of them, but I've heard almost every one of you give me some little piece of your testimony that talked about something he did in your life that you know only could have been him to help you know how real he is. Some of you didn't have that experience really until you were at the moment of telling him to go take a hike. You were done, right? I mean, you just, you were like, I don't know what to do with, with this whole vertical thing. And I'm ready to say enough already. I can't figure it out. I quit. And then he right away, he showed up and he said, Oh no, I'm here. I'm here. Don't quit. Don't give up. I think Israel might have been just about there when they were in Egypt. They thought he had just forgotten about them. But he was paying attention. He was there. And then we have these stories to remind us that these things apply in our lives today as well. We experience something similar to what we read about others experiencing in the book. Okay, so now we get to verse 6. O seed of Abraham, his servant, children of Yaakov, his chosen ones. So who's he talking to? He's talking to covenanted people. Because he made those promises. These are not only covenanted people, these are children of promise. And we're told even in the... In the New Testament, the Brick Hadashah, that if you are doing these things, that you are children of Abraham and also children of promise. The promise is made to Abraham. Chosen ones. 
and were chosen because he had chosen Abraham and Yaakov, and through them others would then choose to follow. He is Yahweh or Elohim. His right rulings are in all the earth. He has remembered his covenant forever, the word he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham and his oath to Yitzchak, and established it to Yaakov for a law to Israel, an everlasting covenant. Now, so we start off here, he's saying, this covenant he's remembering is this one he made with Abraham. Remember, that one was unilateral. He made that himself. Abraham didn't have to do anything. He made promise to him, promises to him about his seed in the future and how they would be a blessing to all the nations. And so he says that he has remembered this covenant, the word he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant he made to our forefathers. He also established it to Yaakov for a law, to Yisrael, an everlasting covenant. So when he mentions to Yaakov for a law, Yaakov and Israel, it should point us back to actually to Moses' time, where he's actually looking at Israel and Yaakov now as a nation. I could be wrong there, but this is my interpretation here. But he's specifically here talking about the land as we see going into verse 11. Saying, to you I give the land of Canaan, the portion of your inheritance, when they were few in number, few indeed, and sojourners in it, and they went about from one nation to another and from one reign to another people. He allowed no one to oppress them and he reproved sovereigns for their sakes. So because he's talking about them as a nation and the promise of the land and protection, that's why I believe by verse 10, he's referring to them starting after Egypt. He's referring to them after Moses and the law. That's why that hint there is he established it to Yaakov for a law. There's a linkage now to covenant and law. The covenant that he promised to Abraham, he's now saying, is linked to the covenant he made at Sinai. That the children of Abraham were supposed to also be a part of the Sinai covenant. This is, my, this is the way I'm piecing it together. Okay? And he says that that people were to be sojourners in the land, the land that he promised, and that they were protected he allowed no one to oppress them. He reproved sovereigns for their sakes, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no evil. Verse 15. How many prophets did they have, and how many sovereigns were going to bother them as a group prior to Egypt? You don't see very much of that, do you, at all? So that's where I'm now jumping to the conclusion, so to speak, that this is referring now to them as a nation. So when he says Yaakov and Yisrael in verse 10... He's referring to the nation, the 12 tribes together. And continuing, he says, And he called for a scarcity of food and land. He cut off all the supply of bread. And he sent ahead of them a man, Yosef, sold as a slave. See, here's that, those tribes now going into Egypt. And they afflicted his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons. Until the time that his word came, the word of Yahweh tried him. The sovereign center released him. The rule of the people let him loose. And he made him master of his house and ruler over all his possessions. To bind his chiefs at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Yisrael came to Mitzrayim and Yaakov sojourned in the land of Ham. And he increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. He turned their heart to hate his people, to conspire against his servants. And he sent Moshe, his servant, Aaron, whom he had chosen. And they said among them the matters of signs and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark, and they did not rebel against his word. He turned their waters into blood and killed their fish. Their land teemed with frogs in the rooms of their sovereigns. He spoke, and swarms of flies came, gnats in all the borders. He gave them hail for rain, a flaming fire in their land. And he smote their vines and their fig trees and broke the trees of their borders. He spoke, and locusts came, and larvae innumerable, and they devoured all the plants in their land. They devoured the fruit of their ground. Then he smote all their firstborn in the land, the firstborn of all their strength, and brought them out with silver and gold. And among his tribes, no one faltered. See, he's trying to show a pattern of things. They, they were promised a bunch of stuff. They were protected to a certain degree. Then they made some mistakes and ended up, as they were tested and tried, they ended up in Egypt and in slavery. Sadly, we don't know exactly what happened there. But we can see that they ended up in slavery. There was a disconnect between them and their creator. 
But then he used signs and wonders. Do you not see this in your life? To get your attention. To bring you out. This goes back to Exodus 6 and the four cups and the things that he did. Deliverance. Redemption. Bringing forth. And then acceptance. And so you have these things going on. He's reminding them of all this stuff here in the psalm. But notice that this is all based on the very first verse. Give thanks to Yahweh. Because he's done all these things. And don't forget how this all comes through. He did it because... He didn't do... Well, let's, let's say what he didn't do. He didn't do it because you're special. He didn't do it because you're just so special that he needs to do all these things for you. He did it because he made a promise. He made a covenant. And then with the people that he promised, the children, the descendants of the people he promised, he made those promises with and covenanted with, he then brought them into a covenant. We're going to see that here. They went through this process and they go through Egypt and they were brought out through all these signs and wonders and plagues that by verse 38, Mitzrayim was glad when they left for the fear of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. They asked and he brought quail and satisfied them with bread of heaven. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It ran in dry places a river. For he remembered his set-apart word to Abraham. To Abraham, his servant. He's trying to say through this psalm, not only does he want us to remember all the things he did, he wants us to remember that he doesn't forget his covenant and his promises. And we are to become like him. And in becoming like him, we need to be making the effort to remember his covenant and his promises. But more importantly, the linkage here is that if you remember what he did, you'll remember his covenant and his promises. Because he's telling you the reason he did all those things was because of promises. The reason that he did what he did in your life is because of what he promised Abraham. He promised Abraham, you will be the father of many goyim, of many Gentiles, of many nations. That your descendants will be like the stars in the heaven, the sand of the sea, etc. Well, guess what? He's doing what he's doing in your life because of what he promised that one individual right there. That's a long time. We're talking about thousands of years now since he made Abraham that promise. We're talking about approximately, what, almost 4,000 years now since what he said to Abraham. Because by the time Abraham's around, it's almost 2,000 years into all this. And so that's 4,000 years and yet he's still doing for you because of what he promised Abraham. And we are expected to imitate him. And so he remembers. Verse 43, So he brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave to them the lands of the Gentiles, and they inherited the labor of peoples, in order that they might guard his laws and watch over his Torah, praise Yah. So we start off in the bookends of this this psalm, give thanks to Yahweh, and we finish off, because he gives us the opportunity to guard his laws and watch over his commandments, his Torah. The stuff in the middle is all the stuff that's the reason why we give thanks to him and why we're motivated to watch over his Torah. Because the Torah is part of the covenant. The Torah is the whole point of the covenant, and that's what brings the blessings, brings the protection, and it brings the transformation. And this is what he has promised. So he starts, it's just beautiful how this kind of goes through. He says, give thanks to Yahweh, call upon his name, sing to him, sing praises to him, boast on him, speak of all his wonders. And then he says, okay, now let's have a little history lesson. All that we're talking about is because of what he promised Abraham. And then he chose a people. And he said, you will be my chosen people. That's why he keeps referring to them as the chosen ones. But chosen for what purpose? Chosen to keep his commandments. Chosen to be in covenant. And this is why we're now in 17 parts, because the lack of understanding of covenant is a critical missing piece in the body as a whole. And so I actually feel, I don't know what the right word is. I I feel like I somehow missed the mark by not doing this until now. All these years of ministry, I don't know why, whatever, whatever reason, but this covenant thing, it should have been something right up front, like fear of Yahweh, right up front, like overcoming, right up front with understanding salvation. So I'm so glad that 
I was poked by a few people to say, hey, would you do a teaching on covenant? Because this is the relationship we have. Because we talk about the love that we're supposed to have. And that we have a love relationship with our Creator. Yes, but it's in a form called covenant. There's a format called covenant. I have a love for my wife, and guess what? It's in a form called covenant. It's called the marriage covenant. So just you can't just say, well, I love my Creator. My Creator loves me. My Messiah loves me. I love my Messiah. All that stuff. But what's the relationship framework? The relationship framework is called covenant. Just like a husband and a wife. You fall in love, and what do you do? You decide to officially covenant with each other. And by the way, that's why when I do premarital counseling, what do we talk about a covenant? A covenant has a relationship between two or more parties in which there's an agreement to do or not do specified things. Now, this whole in sickness and health and blah, 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 whoever wrote that, that's useless stuff. What you want to do is you want to sit there with your spouse to be, you're intended to be, and negotiate out what it is you actually are specified expectations. I, you, I am committing to do and not do these specific things as part of this covenant. And if you didn't work it out in the covenant, and then it comes up later in the marriage, well, and then you made a mistake, you need to bring that in. You need to sit down again and say, we need to add this. We need to amend the covenant and add something that was missing. But this is why people should not be in such a rush to get married, or at least while they're getting ready to get married, instead of just having a lot of fun together, spend time figuring out what it is that you're going to specify that you are going to do and not do, and you're going to expect them to do and not do. Because that's what Yahweh has laid out for us in this love relationship. And we're going to do another teaching on love and Torah and get much more into what love looks like and all of that. But on this relationship, we said, oh, what I just love. I mean, that's what we write. We talk about love, love, love. But it has to be in the framework of something. And that framework, scripturally, is called a covenant. Like the marriage covenant. And so here we have a relationship with our creator. And that's the covenant of Exodus 19. And that covenant we broke, not we, we were not born yet. But the nation of Israel, our forefathers, are we're the descendants of the people that broke that covenant. And we are living in the result of breaking that covenant. Right? The curse is part of Deuteronomy 28 because the covenant was broken. So guess what that means? There needs to be a new or renewing of that covenant. It needs to be replaced with a new one. Now, the... The problem is that Christianity wants to make you feel like the covenant was the problem, so it has to be different. Now, the covenant was perfect. We have to be different. Let's say that again. The way it's taught through Christianity is that the covenant needs to be different because the flaw or problem was the covenant. So now we have a new and different covenant. No, the problem was the people. The covenant was perfect. Because it came from our creator who is perfect. We were the flawed part of that equation. So the part in the equation that was damaged and flawed. Okay, let's say that you're dealing with um, a leak in your roof. And, it's, and, and you have tiles and stuff that are f- like falling apart. It's all getting on the carpet. And the carpet's getting all ruined in one part of the room. Okay, so am I now going to go ahead and take out and replace the piece of carpet that's ruined and damaged or am I going to take out the good stuff because it's the good stuff's fault? Or am I going to take out the good part of the roof? No, I'm going to fix the part where the problem was. The problem in the covenant was us. So he took us out of the equation and let us go think about it for a good little while. And hopefully now we've thought about it long enough to say, oh, I want to be back in that covenant. Because that covenant brought blessing. That brought, uh, brought uh, safety and protection. That covenant brought transformation. Why would you want a different one? Oh, but we don't like to do all those rules. Well, it was breaking the rules that got you thrown out. Do you think Yahweh's now going to decide, oh, that was just too hard for them. I'm going to make it easier on them now and not give them a whole bunch of rules. But the rules were for you. The rules were for your benefit. 
not only individually, but communally. So we have to realize that this whole covenant thing, which is part of the, the framework within the relationship functions, yes, we broke it, so we need a new one. So, so, so when some people talk about the new covenant and others want to argue it's a renewed covenant, it's both. It is new because the other one is no longer. We broke it. There needs to be a new one. That contract is, okay, if I have a contract with you to do business and somehow one of us breaks that contract, that, that will void the contract. But then we can sit down and make a new one to reestablish the relationship so we can do business. The contract is new, but it could be written exactly like the old one. But let's also understand that just because that covenant is null and void, the promises to Abraham are not. That's a unilateral covenant. The ones at Sinai, we broke. That's why we're no longer getting the blessing. But he is still giving us the cursing, which he says, when we talk about covenant, it says, when covenants are between Yahweh and mankind, the conditions that are attached to the human side, if we do not do them, there are consequences. Remember, we talked about that. So just because we broke the covenant and it's no longer in effect as far as the blessing side, doesn't mean, oh, well, because it's no longer in effect, we don't get the curses either. No, those are the ramifications of our breaking. It's just like if we had a, um, a business contract or even like a prenup. You know, people talk about prenups when they get married. It says, if you ever go to divorce me, I get this, 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 and this. Okay, that was, by the way, in all the ketubahs that the Jewish community wrote. The father would negotiate a contract called the ketubah and say, look, if you ever divorce my daughter, then she goes away from that divorce with this many cattle and a house or whatever, whatever they negotiated to make sure she was taken care of. So yes, that marriage can be nullified, or in other words, ended with a divorce, but still there was a consequence to the divorce. Well, Abba says, yeah, you could break the covenant with me, but understand you're going to get the other half of the chapter of 28 in Deuteronomy, you're going to get all these curses. With the intention that the curses would wake us up to get back into covenant. Now, we can't just go back into covenant. He's got to make a new one with us. Now, we are going to do our best to keep the old one until he comes and makes the new one. And I promise you the new one is going to be just like the old one. Because the old one was perfect. We weren't. So why would he do another one different? That's what he believed was the way he wanted to relate with human beings. He laid out, this is the way I relate with human beings. If you think that's going to change somehow in the future, I think you're really kind of delusional or something. He says, now, because can we agree Yahweh is perfect, doesn't make mistakes, knows the end from the beginning, he knew what he was doing. Well, then, when he said, this is the best way for me and that which I created to relate, I don't think that's going to be any different in the future. Contrary to all those people that want to believe in whatever excuse they have to do less Torah, whether it's this whole Melchizedekian thing that's out there, or whether it's the, the Christian thing of the law was done away with, nailed to the cross, blah, blah, blah. These are all excuses to stay outside of covenant. Because we don't agree with his brilliance in making the rules. The arrogance of that is sort of mind-boggling. I mean, the height of just incredible arrogance for us to think that we would know better on how we should relate with him and he should relate with us. The pride, the ego, the vanity. Who do we think we are? <laughs> well, we think we're sitting on our own throne. That's what we think we are. I'm king of me. Nobody tells me what to do. And don't tell me you haven't said those words. Most of you at some point in life said, well, you don't, get to, you don't tell me what to do. Nobody tells me what to do. Well, maybe human beings don't, but he needs to. And that's the nature of the relationship. We trust, that's the emunah, we trust that he will provide everything, because we don't know what we're doing, provided we do what he tells us to do, because he knows what we should be doing. He tells us how to relate to each other, and he tells us how to relate to him. Otherwise, we were going around doing things in a very dumb way. Anybody have that t-shirt? I do. Didn't we all live dumb, foolish, and didn't you get, oh, we got great results, didn't we? I mean, that's why we're here instead of theirs, because we got such great results. 
You know that you're, listen, I hate to say it. We all know we're stupid, okay? Let's be blunt. We don't know. It says in scripture, it is not in man to even know where to put his own feet. Do you not have that t-shirt? We got to have a t-shirt that says, I don't even know where to put my own feet, so I look to Yahweh. That's going to be the t-shirt. Oh, it's all, yeah, we say it and everything else when we read it, but do you own it? Do you live it? Do you appreciate? He is talking about you. He's talking about me. He's talking about all of us when he says that the way that seems right to a man leads to death. He's talking about all of us when he says that we don't even know where to put our own feet. And so what has he done? He gave us a covenant that says, I will tell you exactly how to do all these things that you need to do, where to put your feet. He's even going to teach us how to eat. He teaches us even how to deal with, you know, when we have to go to the restroom. I mean, he even tells you that in there. I mean, I don't mean to be blunt, but he even tells them how to deal with that. You need to have a shovel and you need to go outside the camp. I mean, he tells you all these things, everything that you need to do, bodily functions, interactions socially, and then your vertical relationship. He tells you how to take your steps. And he promises you that his way will result in abundance and blessing and life. So why would we want that? I don't want that covenant, that awful burdensome law thing. Really? You know, it's really funny. As a counselor, okay, and Robert could probably attest to this too. Rabbi Tom can, I'm sure, attest to this too. As a counselor, occasionally I will get somebody that calls me up and says, please, Rabbi, just tell me what to do. A person has gotten to the point where they don't trust themselves anymore. They're so lost and confused. They just want somebody to tell them what to do. Have you ever gotten to that point? That's the whole reason why you suffer is Yahweh wants you to get to that point so you'll listen to him tell you what to do. But you're funny because you only want it in that one little situation. So you'll call me up or you'll call one of the other leaders and you'll say, in this little place right here in this little situation... Can you please just tell me what to do? Of course, we are very happy to not comply. We look you in the eye and say, nope. Because that's not the role. You need to deal with your creator and and understand what you need to do. It is not my job to do those things for you. You're looking for somebody to take that burden away from you. Remember, making decisions is the reason you're here. The reason you exist But you want someone else to make decisions for you only when you want someone else to make decisions for you. Yahweh's already taken the important decisions and told you how to handle them. It's called the Torah. But then we struggle with that. We fight against it and, you know, we want to debate and all this other stuff. You know, one of these days I'm going to have to do this teaching and and I'm really going to, and soon I promise you, we're going to have to do this on submission. We haven't the slightest idea what that's all about. We really don't. We are way too egocentric, way too emotional, way too sensitive, way too everything with the out-of-control emotions to actually be able to submit to authority. And I'm not even talking about human authority. Let's just deal with our creator. Submission does not start until you don't like it or don't agree. And we just don't get that. Yahweh says, if you will just submit and trust me in all these things I've told you to do and not do, I will take care of the rest of it. But he didn't say, you're going to like everything I tell you to do and not do. He didn't sit down and... Did anybody get a consultation before he wrote the Torah to ask your opinion? I, I didn't get one of those, okay? Yeah, I saw that hand go up too. I'll take care of that later. All right? My son being a wise guy. Okay, but none of us were invited to that meeting. There was no meeting. Yahweh said, I know and you don't. So I get to make the rules. But he also said, because I make the rules, I also get to give you blessing or cursing. Because I'm fully in charge. I'm fully in control. But see, what we see in scripture is when they submitted, what happened? Wonderful things. Life was great. They were abundant. People didn't die. Nobody was barren. Their animals and the, and the women had, had all the children they would ever want. There was food to, ab- to abundance everywhere. There was peace. Nobody made them afraid. Ah, but when they didn't submit, decided to do things their own way, what happened? The whole thing came crashing down on their heads. It's not real. I mean, it's not rocket science. 
brain surgery, some sort of complicated thing. It's straightforward, simple. Do, don't do. It's not like he expects you to like figure you know, an advanced degree in theology to understand, don't eat this, you can eat that. Observe this day, don't work on that day. This is how you treat your neighbor. This is how you do business. Okay, so you don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to go to Bible college. You don't have to be, uh, you know, some sort of high, you know, genius IQ, you know, literate type person. If you can read or hear, you don't have to have to read it. You can listen to it. You can get a, a Bible on audio. If you can listen to it even, you can get all that you need. And everybody is capable. Look, this was written to almost all the way through people that were agricultural. They weren't going to schools. They weren't going to universities. Shepherds and farmers. Carpenters. Masons. Masons meaning people that did stonework, not masons like, you know, the order. But you understand, these were your, your people who were doing, they're working with their hands. They were doing good, hard, physical labor. They were not sitting and studying all day. They weren't highly educated. So it's not written saying that you have to be all brilliant and educated to understand it. Look at the Ten Commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. Don't steal. Don't make idols. Keep the Sabbath. Don't embarrass my name. Pay pay attention to how you treat your parents. Respect them and give them honor. I mean, they're not really, you know, needing like a you know, three-week course to understand what the verse means. They're very straightforward. But yet we don't, we don't re- we relate to them that way. The relationship that we have. But I love my creator. I love my Messiah. Then do it in the framework called covenant. Because that's the way he wants to have the relationship. How do I know? Well, because he's only said it, you know, we've done 17 parts, and we're still only in, barely into the Psalms. We started in Genesis. And look at how many parts we've already gotten on this. Covenant is all, as a matter of fact, I've skipped a bunch of verses that dealt with covenant just because they just were repeating the same point over and over again. But there's so much in here. And so this is the relationship he wants to have with us. And so he says, and I'm going to bookend it again. Give thanks to Yahweh, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing to him, sing praise to him, speak of all his wonders, make your boast in his set-apart name, let the hearts rejoice in those seeking Yahweh. Then he says, he did all of this, he gave them the lands of the Gentiles, and they inherited the labor of the peoples in order that they might guard his laws and watch over his Torah. And then he finishes with what? Praise Yah. So no whining about the commandments, no griping and complaining. Praise Yah that he did all of these things. He did all this so that you might have the opportunity to keep his commandments. Do you look at Saturday as a day that you can't do stuff? Or do you look at Saturday as a day that you can do? You can be with you can do this. You can, you can be with each other and be with him. And it's a day to take all that other worldly stuff and put it on the shelf. It'll still be there tomorrow. You don't need to deal with it today. What a blessing that is. And I don't know about you, but I used to, before I came into Torah observance, I used to do things real hard seven days a week. I worked hard. I played hard. I did everything hard. And you know what? I was tired sometimes. I mean, it would really wear out. My emotions, mentally, physically, emotionally, the body can't handle seven days of go, go, go. Only for short periods of time. Societies have tried different configurations over the years of weeks. Eight-day weeks, nine-day weeks, ten-day weeks, shorter weeks. They came to realize that the minimum that we can handle having a day off is that we have to have at least one every seven days. You need that seventh day. Now, sure, you can have more than that, but at the very minimum, we need one in seven. They've tested it. They've tried it. Go do your research. There have been societies in history that have had different configurations of what they called a week, which is, by the way, I believe why they told you, tell you in the counting of Shavuot 
to count seven Shabbatot, or seven sets of seven, because if he said just count seven weeks, not everybody knew a week was seven days. Because it wasn't always, especially not that back in Yeshua's day. They were experimenting with all kinds of different configurations. So he's trying to tell you we're talking about a seven-day week when you're counting the Feast of Weeks. And so here, we, we, look, at, we look at the Torah and we go, Ugh. why would you do that? We should be like, yeah. I am so blessed that he's given me the understanding that I have the opportunity that I might guard his laws and watch over his Torah. And notice the way he says, he doesn't say that I just can do them, but I get to guard and watch over them. What do you generally watch over and guard? Things you love, things that have high value. Things that are, are precious tend to have guards over them or people watching over or security systems. The more valuable, the more you watch over it. Am I right? So that's what he's trying to explain here. The Torah is the highest of value. He said, I did all of this. I gave you lands, the lands of the Gentiles. So, I mean, I gave you all this abundance. Why? So that you can have this opportunity to watch over and guard the commandments. Because it is the highest value. And the people learned that lesson the hard way because they started valuing the land and all of its abundance. And they started to neglect the Torah. And guess what? They got thrown out of the land. They were watching over the wrong thing. They didn't put the chicken and the egg right. They weren't understanding what caused what. They got the abundance because of watching and guarding over the Torah, not the other way around. So he said, look, I'm giving you abundance so that you can keep the Torah, but guess what? You only get to keep all that if you're actually watching and guarding over the Torah. That is our covenantal relationship. I expect you to do or not do these specific things. And you can expect from me. And we've told over and over again how he remembers his covenant, so never have any concerns with that. Now we've got 6,000 years of history that we can read about. Well, 4,000 we can read about here. Another 2,000 we've seen after that. And I think we can see that he's pretty consistent, as in like never breaking his word. So he has not only said it here, but this was a few thousand years ago. It's still true today. He's still keeping his word and keeping his covenant. And we can rest assured of that. We have no worries. There's no issues there. Let's go to Psalm 106. So we're just going to continue right here in the next Psalm. Praise Yahweh. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh for he is good for his kindness is ever. Boy, this sounds similar. Remember, we did that little exercise last week where I went from psalm to psalm, just reading the first verses. Bless Yahweh, praise Yahweh, sing to Yahweh. It's good to give thanks to Yahweh. All these verses that start, all these psalms start off with that. Praise Yahweh, oh, give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his kindness is everlasting. Who does relate the mighty acts of Yahweh and declare all his praise? Blessed are those who guard right ruling, who do righteousness at all times. Are we seeing a pattern here? It starts off with praise him, bless him, give thanks to him, and then, ah, oh, cold water gets thrown in the whole thing. He mentions commandment keeping. No, it's connected. It's all like, yes, give thanks to Yahweh. He is good and everlasting kindness. And what was this now? Blessed are those who guard his right ruling and do his righteousness at all times. Oh, sure, you had to throw that in there. I was right with you until that, right? Because there's no way to disconnect those two things. If you are doing the, he says, if you're guarding the right ruling and the righteousness at all times, he said, blessed are those who do that. And if you're blessed, what are you going to probably do? Praise Yahweh for all of his good things, for all of his goodness. Give thanks to Yahweh for he is good, right? Man, that was about as out of tune as I can sing right there. That was terrible. All right, that was in the key of L. Okay, so... Because it was lousy. That was the key of L. All right. In case you're wondering why I picked L. All right. Um, look at the connection here. Praise him. Give thanks to him. Remember that his kind, kindness. He's linking his kindness, which is everlasting, to his Torah, which is everlasting. 
So it's in his kindness that he gave us the law. Oh, no, you're not getting me to go back under that law, that awful, evil, blah, blah. Come on. And the next time anybody ever says going about going back under, tell them, don't worry about it, you can't. And they'll be like, what? Well, if you never did it before, you can't go back under it. So don't tell me. Well, you're not getting me to go back under the law. Well, sorry, but that's impossible for you. You can't do something. You can't go back to something you never did. Now, you can choose to submit to his law, to come into covenant. You certainly could choose that. But this whole idea of, well, blah, 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 it's, it's the wrong attitude. Christian, you know, people say, why do you pick on Christianity so much? Because they are preaching a gospel, a, a brainwashing, so to speak, a mindset that what he gave that is to be praised and appreciated is terrible. They want you to think that the law is the problem and it needed to be done away with so because you now need to be freed from all of that terrible stuff. And if I'm wrong, then you're going to have to show me I'm wrong because that's what I see them doing. I'm not picking on the people. I'm saying the system called Christianity is trying to convince the people in it that the law is no good. It's bad. It's wrong. It's a burden that even our forefathers couldn't bear, blah, blah, blah. He was not talking about Torah in that verse. He was talking about the man-made stuff. But yet, all I can read out of the Old Testament, where the covenant was given, is praise Yah, give thanks to Yahweh, He is good. And guess what? His kindness that's everlasting is connected to His giving us righteous right rulings. His Torah, His law. He said, blessed are those who guard the commandments, guard the right rulings, who do what's right. What is righteousness? Doing what's right. When you see it in scripture, it means doing what Yahweh said to do and not doing what he said not to do. That declares you as righteous. Oh no, I'm declared righteous by Messiah and him only and blah, blah, blah. That is not anywhere in scripture. Abraham was declared righteous. We know why. Because he did what Yahweh said. How do we know that? We see it in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 says, wasn't it by the actions that this one was declared right, and this one was declared right, and this one was declared right? Every single one of those people listed in Hebrews 11. It was by faith they did this, and did that, and did this. And then when he got to Abraham, he says, and because of that, he was declared righteous. He said, well, no, he was just declared righteous by belief. Because because of his belief, he did something. This is what James is talking about. He said, by belief, I do things. And therefore, I can show you my belief by my acts, by my works. Okay, so here he's saying, look, blessed are those who guard the right ruling and who do righteousness at all times. Big brother's watching you. So is, so is his father <laughs> at all times. I'm just looking at that word again, at all times. That means that there isn't a minute of the day when he's not watching you. Because he says, it's blessed are those who do it all the time. It doesn't say sometimes or just when you're at services or just on Shabbat or just on a holy day. He said, blessed are those who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Yahweh, in the acceptance of your people. Visit me with your deliverance. To see the good of your chosen ones, to rejoice in the gladness of your nation, to make my boast with your inheritance. We have sinned with our fathers. We have acted perversely. We have done wrong. That sounds like the Alchet. Okay, during Yom Kippur. That's where they probably got it from. Our fathers in Mitzrayim did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your many kindnesses, but rebelled by the sea, the Sea of Reeds. Okay, so you see what's going on here again. The pattern of the instruction is to say, you need to praise him, give thanks to him, and appreciate him because of all these things at the beginning. And then he goes into, okay, now let me admit and confess my, my failings, where I failed, where I've fallen short. He said, we have sinned with our fathers. It wasn't just them. We've acted perversely. We have done wrong. He said, look, our fathers did this, and we do the same type of things today. That's what he's saying. Our fathers did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your many kindnesses. Isn't that one of the premises that I said at the beginning? That we are going to look at the role and the effect of remembering what Yah has done and how that affects our covenant keeping. 
They acted perversely and did wrong, and so do we when we don't understand his wonders and we don't remember his many kindnesses. Maybe you don't understand his wonders. Maybe you don't understand, but I think from the point of view of understanding why he does them. He does them for one reason, one reason only, to strengthen your faith, your emunah. He doesn't just do it because he likes you. He does it because he, and, and, and the liking you thing is built into this. He does it because he does like you, but he doesn't do it just because he likes you. He does it because he wants you, because he likes you, to have your faith strengthened. He's not just doing it just because he likes you and wants to be nice to you. He's doing it because he cares about you to have your strength, of the strength of your faith built up, to have that strengthened. He says that, but notice the link here. Sinning, acting perversely, doing wrong is somehow linked to not understanding the wonders and not remembering the kindnesses. This led to rebellion. So I think we can make a linkage here reasonably to sin, acting perversely, and doing wrong to rebelliousness. You need to be in some sort of rebellious place to do those things. To act perversely, to sin, to do what's wrong. Our fathers in Mitzrayim in Egypt did not understand, but they rebelled by the sea, the Sea of Reeds. So what were they doing at the Sea of Reeds? Well, I don't know why they just didn't wait patiently for him to split the sea. Well, they had no idea he was going to split the sea. What they did was they saw themselves stuck in the literal rock in a hard place. They had the sea, they had the mountains, and they had the Egyptians. There was no place to go. And instead of having emunah, instead of having faith, they rebelled, they panicked, they had a problem, they did what was wrong, they acted perversely, etc. This is the issue for us as well. If we understand his wonders, if we remember his many kindnesses, then we would understand and remember that we need to do what Moses said from Yahweh's inspiration, be still and see the deliverance. Be still and see. Because just like the Israelites had no idea the sea was going to part, you have no idea how he's going to fix your problem. And so you're in the same place as they, that they were. The only problem is you have a really hard time really understanding how they felt because you already know the sea parted. You can only one time read that story or watch that movie and wonder what's going to happen. After that, you already know. So no, no longer can you really fully embrace that mindset. But they, if you were to embrace it, they were in full-blown panic. They knew they were dead. What they should have known was something amazing was about to happen. But they instead were, what was more real to them was they just knew they were dead. And so they rebelled against Moses, they rebelled against Yahweh, they just were, oh great, you brought us out here just so the Egyptians could kill us by the water. We got no place to go. Yeah, you're a real genius, Moses, you brought us right down to a dead end, literally. Uh, no, I brought you exactly where Yahweh wanted you to be when he showed himself mighty. If you would just be quiet long enough and sit still and see what he does. At this point, I think some of you need to stay in the water on the way out and drown with the Egyptians because you're just not ready. And some of them would have that problem. They will die in the desert. They will die when the ground opened and swallowed up some of them. They'll die by the sword of the Levites at Mount Sinai. Some of them are going to get that anyway. Because even the parting of the sea wasn't enough. What does he have to do for you to be enough? For you to really get it and to go back to that, blessed are those who guard right ruling, who do righteousness at all times. What signs and what? Because he's saying the reason they didn't is because they did not understand and they did not remember the kindnesses. Has he not been kind to you? I mean, many of you have even told me, I don't deserve this. I do not deserve the kindnesses he's given me. I deserve where I was, and that path was leading to death. And he has shown me, you know, basically bottomless kindness because I do not deserve, I have not earned any of this. I have earned death. Now, some of you didn't leave, lead that kind of a life. But, I mean, some of us led some pretty awful lives. And we know. So we're not saying you just earned death because you didn't keep the Sabbath and didn't eat right. I'm talking about some of us led some pretty, did some pretty horrible things. 
And in his kindness, he still called you anyway and brought you here anyway and brought you under his covenant anyway. And that's abundant kindness. And so you need to remember those things. So it says here, but he saved them for his name's sake to make known his might. Notice he didn't do it for them. He saved them because they were his special people and he loved them so much. No. His reputation was on the line. He had already told them and all the other nations around had seen what he did in Egypt, that he was bringing them out to deliver them. And so we even have Moses have that conversation with him at one point. Not here at the sea, later on, where he wants to go ahead and he says, Hey Moses, why don't I just wipe them all out and start again with you? And he says, well, what's that going to do to your name? Everybody knows you brought this people out of Egypt, that they're your people. So he said, I, for my name's sake, and to make known my might, he said, I, he rebuked them, the, the sea of reeds, and dried it up. He rebuked the sea. Notice that it was nice of him and kind of him to rebuke the sea and not the people. Now, he rebukes the people eventually because he keeps saying, I'm only patient up to so long. At some point, you're going to reap what you sow. I've only, you know, now he's abundant in patience, but when he says my patient is, it's not that he loses his patience like we would as humans. He says, that clearly is not getting the result I want. I'm going to have to punish you. That's when he says things like, I'm going to have to curse you seven times. And if you're not instructed by these, curse you seven times more. You're not instructed by these, curse you seven times more. Just looking over here to see what time we've got here. Okay, so he saved them from the hand of the hater and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. And waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. Then they sang his praise. Then they soon forgot his works. Wow, that was like a whole one verse. Then they believed and they sang his praise. And then they were whining and complaining about being thirsty. And hungry. Why, do you think he split the water just so you could starve to death? Or die of thirst? They soon forgot his words. They did not wait for his counsel, but greedily lusted in the wilderness and tried El in the desert. And he gave them a request, but sent leanness within their being. And they were jealous of Moshe in the camp and of Aaron, the set-apart one of Yahweh. So then the earth opened up and swallowed Dathan in the co- and covered the company of Aviram. And a fire burned in their company, a flame consumed the wrong. They made a calf in Horeb and bowed down to the molded image. Thus they changed my esteem into the form of an ox that eats grass. They forgot El, their savior, the doer of great deeds in Mitzrayim, of wonders in the land of Ham, of awesome deeds by the sea of reeds. Then he said that he would destroy them and had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath from destroying them. They then despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his word. See, notice what keeps happening. He keeps doing for them, and they keep being, it doesn't say it every verse here, they get it for like five minutes. I mean, they do. They have a generation or a king or a period of time where they get it, but it only lasts for a very short period of time. And so that's why I think that the theme here that you keep seeing in the Psalms is that we have to pay attention to the effect of our remembering or our not remembering what he's done for us and how we keep covenant or not. Because when they remembered, they believed his words and they sang praise and they were good for five minutes. But then he allowed them to suffer to see what they would do. You know, this always comes back to Deuteronomy 8.2. He let them have these times of leanness, of need, to test, to see whether it was in their heart to trust him. That's the whole point of the commandment keeping is, are we going to trust him? Are we going to believe him? Deuteronomy 8.2 also has that humbling part in it. See, they prove each time when they greedily lust, etc., that they are still sitting on the throne. If they would have gotten completely off the throne, none of this happens. Instead, they go forward like they were supposed to in the covenant. But over time, they get back and climb into that seat because it looks all nice and comfortable and start wanting authority over themselves. But they forget the covenant. The covenant says, you give up that sovereignty. Do you remember the eight declarations when we mikvah? One of the things that you say is that I, of my own free will, give up sovereignty over myself 
sovereignty of the world, sovereignty of Hasatan, and come completely under your rulership. I'm paraphrasing the, the actual declaration. But you are giving up self-sovereignty. That doesn't mean that you sit around not knowing what to do until like a, like a robot waiting for someone to tell you what to do. It means authority has been given to him. So you want, and he says, and they don't match, he wins. You win, you're still on the throne. He wins, you've given up the sovereignty. That's all it means. And you're trusting in the benevolence dictatorship of him as sovereign. That if you let him rule, you get everything you could ever possibly want. Not like sovereigns have ruled in the flesh, where it's all been about amassing all the wealth to themselves. Yahweh already has everything. He doesn't want anything. He wants you to have it. But he wants to have you have it in a way that doesn't hurt others and that honors him. And he tells you how to do it. And he covenants with you and says, if you would do that, if you would obey my voice and trust me fully, I will give you all that you could ever want. Actually, I will give you even stuff you couldn't even imagine wanting. You couldn't even come up with the things he has already planned for you. It's so good and so much. And that's where he's at with this. Then they despised the pleasant land. They didn't believe his word. They grumbled in their tents. They didn't listen to the voice of Yahweh. Ah, that was covenant breaking. They did not listen to the voice. So he lifted up his hand in an oath against them to make them fall in the wilderness, to make their seed fall among the Gentiles and to scatter them in the lands. That's, that's the result. And by the way, he promised that. He said, look, if you obey, you get all this. And if you don't, you get that. Deuteronomy 28 is very explicit, very clear. And yet, in their foolishness, and we are guilty of the same, they didn't listen. He says, they did not listen to the voice of Yahweh. And we need to recommit. You know, we are now in the time of Hanukkah. I'm going to stop here in verse 20, 27, okay? Hanukkah is about, the word Hanukkah means dedication. You know, I looked up on, I can pull it up real quickly here on my phone. Dedication. Because it's supposed to be dedicated to the covenant. Dedication has the, uh, the quality of being dedicated or committed to a task or purpose. Synonyms are commitment, diligence, resolve, enthusiasm, zeal, conscientiousness, perseverance, persistence, drive, staying power, etc. So as we rededicate or we look at ourselves as the dedicated among the people, are we dedicated to covenant? Specifically the Exodus 19 covenant? Do we have persistence and perseverance? And are we, are we have the zeal and the, and the strength of will to go forward and keep that commitment? That's what we should be examining at this time of year. Father, we come before you and we are, we are just examining ourselves as we read your word to see how what you're saying and telling us that the people did in the past may also be things that we are guilty of today. And seeing also the path to restoring relationship and understanding what needs to be done so that we don't forget your wonders and we don't forget the things that you've done in your kindnesses and so we don't sin or act perversely or do wrong. Father, we just want to have that relationship, that love, that, that relationship of the children to a father as a bride to a bridegroom, which is built in a framework called covenant. And so, Father, help us to get off the throne to truly submit, no matter what our opinions are, no matter what our feelings are, that we would fully have emunah and trust in you so that we can go forward in covenant. Father, this is not easy for us. We are going to look and lean on your strength. We're going to seek you, your strength, and your face always. Help us to truly do that so that we can give thanks to you, call upon your name, make known your deeds among the people, sing to you, sing praises to you, speak of all your wonders, and make boast in your set-apart name. Let our hearts rejoice in the seeking of you and your ways. Father, we thank you for all that you do. Help us to, to not mess this up. Help us to stay the course, to persist, to persevere, and to, to, hold, to cling, cleave, and hold fast to all that you have put us to do. Father, we so appreciate the wonders in our lives that you do, the great and mighty things that you've done that we do not deserve. 
but yet you've done them to give us an opportunity, a chance for life. So we thank you, we praise you, and appreciate. We sing praises to your name and give you thanks. In the name above all names, Yeshua our Messiah, in his authority. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to Now is the Time with Steve Berkson here on Hebrew Nation Radio. Now is the Time Radio is a production of MTOI, Messianic Torah Observant Israel. For more information, visit mtoi.org.